What do you get when two icons of the Industrial Revolution pile into a Model T and speed off to look for America? You get a one-of-a-kind road trip peppered with Jazz Age characters like Fiddler Jep Bisbee. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine welcomes aboard titans of a rapidly paving America. We'll tour a young nation in a hurry, where a new breed, automobilists, are dumping horses for horsepower as fast as the Ford Motor Company can crank out vehicles. Gassing us up for this journey is Jeff Gwynn, author of The Vagabonds, the story of Henry Ford and Thomas Edison's 10-year road trip. Touring such vacation hotspots as the Everglades, Ford and Edison welcomed aboard an entourage that included naturalist John Burroughs and tire maker Harvey Firestone. But no matter how famous you are, then as now, time spent stuck in a car brought frayed nerves and zany mishaps, along with some literal bumps in the road. But there's no better way to get the cut of someone's jib, or to get to know them, than by taking these trips, by hitting the road and just finding where it takes you. Jeff Gwynn is an award-winning former investigative journalist and the best-selling author of numerous books. They include Go Down Together, the true untold story of Bonnie and Clyde, and The Last Gunfight, the real story of the shootout at the OK Corral. Find out more about our guest at his Simon & Schuster author page, or toss him a like at facebook.com slash Author. Okay, now that we've pulled on those driving gloves and taken our turn cranking the engine to life, let's join Jeff Gwynn and go riding along in our automobile with The Vagabonds. I'm joined via Skype by Jeff Gwynn, author of The Vagabonds, the story of Henry Ford and Thomas Edison's 10-year road trip. Thank you so much for making time to hit the open road with the History Author Show. Well, Dean, I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you for letting me be on your show. Well, thank you for writing this book and then agreeing to talk with me about it, because both of these guys, you grow up hearing so much about them, and then when you get them together, say those old pictures, Babe Ruth and George H.W. Bush, when George H.W. Bush was at Yale, right, pitching. Those are just great moments, and this takes us right there with these huge figures they're they're almost super human figures but i just thought oh let's see what these guys are going to talk about let's just listen to them and that's what you gave us well that's what intrigued me i mean i never want to write books that have already been written you always want to find something fresh and i had no idea about this so it was a learning experience despite this status that these men have as a cut above they were the wealthiest most famous men at the time in america And yet, I see your book title, and it's The Vagabonds. 
So I start thinking of hobos riding the rails. I get a little Woody Guthrie music running through my head. <laughs> and it seems so incongruous with these two guys who were looked up to and were really driving forces in American history. They adopt that moniker for themselves. So let's start right there with the title. What did that name mean to Henry Ford and Thomas Edison when they applied it to their team up? Using the term the vagabonds to describe themselves was kind of an inside joke. One of the things that's really important to remember, just in terms of the impact Ford and Edison could have culturally beyond the cars, beyond the incandescent bulb, was that this was a period in America where there weren't that many famous people yet. You had radio still just barely becoming into existence, TV not even thought of. People had the newspapers, basically, and that was it. Right up to Ford and Edison, if you look back at American celebrities, they're mostly politicians or military generals with a Mark Twain occasionally thrown in. But because of what Ford and Edison had contributed, I mean, we think of Ford, we talk about he made cars available to the common man. And forget, he's also the one that introduced the $5 workday and, and the shorter work week. So people not only had time, but money to get cars and then go places with them. Thomas Edison, not just the incandescent bulb, he invented the phonograph, music into the homes. They both meant so much. The two most famous men in America. And now what they're going to do is they're going to get some of their friends and get in cars and do this tremendous thing that people just hadn't even considered possible. We're going to drive around America. We're going to have vacations in the nice weather. And we're going to enjoy every minute. So they're having fun. I mean, there's nothing secretive here. They're not trying to play tricks on anybody. But at the same time, they're going out to publicize this whole idea. And they do it so well that when they start in 1914, there are maybe a few hundred thousand cars in America, and very few of them are doing anything but taking people to work and back. By the time they finish, there are at least 10 million Americans 10 years later doing this whole auto camping thing, going on car trips. So through their celebrity, through these trips, they really were the ones who changed America into a car culture. It would have happened eventually, but they were the ones, as they had been previously with products and inventions, that actually stepped in and made it happen. So it's amazing. I love that they're having fun while they do this. They're not just going out there specifically to get people to drive or specifically just to have fun for themselves or to try or to advertise the cars. They have so many things working at once. And I think that that's a sign of a person that has a really 
genius level intellect, somebody who's really driven, successful in whatever field. This is something that I think transcends that. If you're a successful person, you're going to diversify yourself. You're not just going to do one thing at a time. You're going to accomplish multiple things. And they do that even around the campfire. They'll be talking about their latest ideas. Ford will always be bouncing things off Edison. It's really a almost father and son relationship there. And yet, Ford has so few people he can talk to in that way and look up to and listen and respect because he is a smart guy, a successful guy, and he knows it. So he's not going to listen. You mentioned the thing about the work week and about the $5 day. Those aren't his ideas. He has to be led into those, pushed into them. He wants his ideas, and that that's throughout the vagabonds. He knows what he wants to do, and he doesn't listen so well to just everyday people. And and he has a good track record that shows him that that's the way to be. But with Edison, they can go out and they can be on the same level on so many things, have so many interests. And I liked that. I liked having this peek into their lives where you bring us into the car with them and we just get to listen to them talk as I guess we would if we were there and we were beside them on the actual trip with the Vagabonds. You know, they asked William F. Buckley once that if he could have dinner with Winston Churchill, what would he say to him? And he said, I would say, please speak continuously without interruption. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of that you'd sit with these guys and you'd say they have so much to say. I just want to listen to them. Well, see, that's one of the exciting things about this subject. And I would urge your listeners, if they like the book, it's not just something words printed on paper. Because Ford and Edison understood their celebrity, they knew how famous they were, the curiosity people had in what they thought besides the things that they did. On these trips, they would bring along cameramen. There there are films of them just sort of romping in the woods together, wood chopping contests, high kicking contests, having fun. They kept journals. Ford kept pocket notes. All these things still exist, from the absolutely fabulous Ford Museum in Dearborn to Thomas Edison Research Gardens in New Jersey. This isn't something that's just sort of a vague, shadowy memory. It's very real still. And the nature of the relationship between Ford and Edison was something I didn't understand until I started the research. They became the two most famous men in America. No one else besides the two of them could understand the pressure that each was under to keep producing new miracles. Their wives couldn't understand that. Their friends, no matter how famous, couldn't understand that. It was Ford and Edison, and they could communicate to each other in a way that was impossible for anybody else in the country. (laughs) When they met in 1896, Thomas Edison is already the most famous man in America. Henry Ford is simply a minor cog as an engineer in one of Edison's companies. Ford, at a banquet, manages to sort of force himself into the great man's presence, talks about some gas-powered engines that he's trying to produce. Edison, who is always encouraging to the young, says, oh, young man, that's the thing, you keep at it. He just meant to be nice. Ford took it as sort of an order from his idol. (laughs) And so 14 years later, when suddenly Henry Ford has become just about as famous as Thomas Edison, a lot richer because he's a shrewder businessman, 
he sends off to Edison asking for an autographed picture. Edison has an assistant write back in closing the picture and saying, Mr. Edison would like to meet Mr. Ford at some point. To Ford, meeting Edison was a life-changing moment he'd never forget. To Edison, it'd just be nice to some faceless kid that he forgot in a minute. But once they met again, there it was. They recognized each other as innovators, as people who were in constant demand, who had not to be geniuses once, but were very much expected by the whole country to keep it up. What miracle is next from you guys? And the way they built their friendship and the way they expressed it, not only was in obvious ways, but subtle ones. That's what the Vagabonds is all about, how you change culture, not just by your inventions, not just by the big, great, luminous moments, but what you do in between to keep people thinking about the potential, the possibilities of the things you've given them. Nobody understood in the beginning that this phonograph that Thomas Edison put together was going to be the precursor of all Americans being able to have whatever kind of music in their homes and their lives that they wanted. That Edison's kinetoscope, the flexible film, would move the film industry from its sort of primitive state to where it can go into movie theaters, where you've got something to go out and do in the evenings. Ford with the Model T. Before that car, most Americans never traveled further than 12 miles in a day from their homes. And the reason they didn't was 12 miles and back is as far as a horse and wagon could comfortably go. It wasn't the railroads that gave Americans freedom of movement because the railroads had those tracks that you had to go on. Ford and Edison and, and their companions, Harvey Firestone, John Burroughs, they taught Americans that you had so much more freedom <laughs> than you previously realized. It's an, a magnificent thing. And over 10 years, that's what they set out to do. I played a little bit of Jet Bisbee in the introduction. We meet this hard scrabble Paris, Michigan fiddler in the first pages of The Vagabonds. Why did you choose that moment to kick off your latest literary road trip? You mentioned that there weren't big stars at this point in American history, that it was mostly the generals, people in public life, and you couldn't have somebody who was just really good on the fiddle who would be famous, and he can be in everybody's home thanks to the phonograph, right? So what was it about his story? Where did you discover him in your research that made you say, let me put this guy in at the very beginning, and then... A little bit of a spoiler alert, bring him back later and see how he's doing. What was it about Jeff? Well, the magic to me of the Vagabonds trips is they didn't go to the big cities. They got in their cars and they went out into the country and they went into a lot of isolated communities where things were very inwardly held. And the people there... When they would see Ford and Edison, it was literally like having God appear before you, something that was almost unthinkable. I went everywhere the vagabonds did, put tens of thousands of miles on my poor, long-suffering car. And 
everywhere you would go, when you'd look up all the little county newspapers, the little town newspapers that came out in 1914, 15, 16, 17, about their trips, you would see the stories of how people would just think, my God, it's them. Jeff Bisbee in Paris, Michigan, to me was the best example of the magic that the vagabonds were capable of bestowing as they traveled. Jep was a world-class fiddler. He made his own violins, but very few people knew about him. Right. He played barn dances. He played different civic events just in the area in which he lived. Locally, he was kind of a celebrity, you know, Jep Bisbee. On the other hand, uh, when Ford and Edison encountered him, he was listed in the local directory as a shoemaker, because music just wasn't enough to make a living, no matter how good you were. Ford heard about Jeff Disby from Edward Kingsford, a man who worked for Ford in one of his lumber businesses, who'd heard Jeff play. Now, Ford and Edison both hated what modern music was becoming. They thought jazz was disgusting, too sensual, too carnal. Ford, in particular, loved old, traditional American music, and he and his wife loved to dance waltzes and square dances. So when Ford heard there's this great country fiddler, and they were going that way, suddenly in Paris, Michigan, this little tiny backwater town, it's a drizzly sort of chilly day in the late summer. And suddenly out of the mist come six magnificent cars driven by chauffeurs and limousines. And out pops Henry Ford. And the townspeople, you know, all several hundred of them, just gather around with their jaws dropping. And Henry Ford wonders, anybody know where Jeff Bisbee lives? Well, they run to show him. And now there's a knock on the Bisbee's door and Mrs. Bisbee opens it, and there stands one of the most famous men in America. Can I come in? Can your husband play fiddle for me? Jep does what he's asked. Ford calls in the rest of the company, including Edison and Ford's wife, Clara, and Edison's wife, Mina. And as Jep Bisbee plays his, his fiddle in his parlor, the Fords begin to dance like experienced square dancers. And the people in the town are watching through the windows. And my God, it was just impossible to believe it was really happening. Before they left that day, Ford and Edison made Jeff various promises. Ford said he was going to bring him a brand new Model T so that Jeff could drive to his shows in, in high style. Edison told Jeff, when we get back home, when I'm back home in Orange, New Jersey, I'm going to bring you and anyone else you want out by rail and in my recording studios. You are going to make records and I'm going to introduce you to the media and you're going to be famous and everybody in the country is going to get to hear your music. Now, think about it. An hour before, you've got an old man who's a shoemaker, occasionally plays some square dances. That's the height of fame as he can conceive it. And all of a sudden, this is happening. That's the magic the vagabonds had to bestow. And as you know, they disappear into the mist. It's like 
were they really here? And for a couple months, Jep doesn't hear anything else. And he's left to wonder, did it really happen? It, if it did happen, are these men who are as truthful as they are famous? There's a happy ending to the story. We all love happy endings. And the best part of that story to me is, by golly, not only does Jep Bisbee get taken by train to New Jersey, recorded in Thomas Edison's studio, his recordings are popular around the country. He thinks he's too old to go on a national tour, but still he's so well known now that when he dies some years later, his obituary is in the New York Times. Meanwhile, Henry Ford shows up at his house one day with the chauffeur in that brand spanking new Model T. They rebuild part of Jep's barn so he can park the Model T inside. Ford hires Jep to come to Detroit and play shows. Jep wins a statewide fiddler contest. And later, even though he's mostly illiterate, this old man scratches out a handwritten note to Ford saying, without you and Mr. Edison, they would have forgotten me. But because of you, everybody wants to hear me play. This is what the vagabonds really could represent. They could change people's lives for the better because of these trips. And mostly that's exactly what they did. And think about somebody born in 1843. He's born in 1843. So this is not just that these are two famous people. Think of the most famous singer you could think of today. Think of the most successful industrialist. I guess we have a lot of Silicon Valley people. Meeting them is one thing because we have a template in our head. Maybe we're thinking of Edison and Ford. But for somebody like Jep, these men had ushered in a golden age with their inventions. They would have been something unlike he'd ever seen before. And here they are dancing, tapping their feet, listening to him play on his homemade fiddle. Edison buys one of his fiddles from him, right? Doesn't he? For $100. Think how much that was back then. Ford slapped down $100 before Jeff could even say how much he wanted for the fiddle, which probably would have been $5 at most. <laughs> yeah, he just decides he's going to buy it. And, and he's happy with that when he goes and he says, well, they're very busy. Maybe they forgot about me. That 100 bucks is a big game changer for his life. But they do come back. They they keep their word to him. And I thought that was a sweet part. I was reading The Vagabonds and saying, I hope Jep gets his due. And so I was happy to see that he did. It's nice that the guy is able to meet these people and that you found a story that we can all relate to. We can all relate to somebody dropping into our lives. They're, they're angels, heaven sent to him. And also, because he's a musician, that's music. As listeners heard at the top of the show, that's a piece of America that's lost forever if that guy passes away. We can't hear a lot of the greats sing, but we can hear him play. We can't hear Shakespeare's voice. We can't even hear many of our early presidents. We can't hear Lincoln's oratory. So this is the kind of thing that Edison's invention does. And when they come together, think of the drive-in movie. We immediately get an image right there in our heads, a vivid thing of what that meant to the America of a certain time. Well, that's these two men together. Without them, that doesn't happen, or it happens much There's later. There's so many other things. You're, you're so correct. Now, there are obviously modern innovations that would have come at some point, but the, the many things happen 
because of Ford and Edison in these trips. We've got paved roads because as more people drove, they bought more gasoline and gas taxes is what improved the roads finally. When camping out became a little too onerous for all the millions of people who were doing it, they had motor camps, auto camps that morphed into motels, gas stations. Before the vagabonds popularized car travel, if you wanted to buy gas for your car, you had to find a hardware store and they sold it to you in a can. But because of them, fuel pumps set up besides roads, restaurants by roads so people could stop and get meals. All these things really had their genesis with the vagabonds. Everybody knows about Ford and the Model T. Everybody knows about Edison and the incandescent bulb, but they don't realize when they pull off the road into a McDonald's, they probably have to thank the vagabonds for part of that too. (laughs) So much impacts us. You get that throughout the vagabonds. And that led me to wonder, even though this history is all around us all the time, every roadside stand, you can trace back to this idea, every roadside attraction, the world's largest ball of twine south of the border there at the border of <laughs> North Carolina and South Carolina, all of these things, it, it changes the culture, as you put it. it, and it makes a whole world of its own. It's something that they they throw these rocks in the water and then the ripples are just everywhere. And yet I had no idea of this story. Perhaps you heard of it before. And that's what I wanted to ask you where the Genesis came from, because your previous books cover such a wide range of subjects. You have Bonnie and Clyde, the Old West, Charles Manson. In fact, here it says right on the cover of my dog-eared copy of The Vagabonds, best-selling author of Manson. And now we're back in the 20s with them, in the very early 20s. How did this real-life buddy film or crossover comic, as I like to think of it, you see two of your heroes together for the first time, and it's really a fun thing. You say, what are these guys going to do? What hijinks are they going to get up to? How did they catch your eye for the first time? And as an author, you said, hey, there's a book in this, and it becomes The Vagabonds. All of my books really are about eeries in American history. I try to pick iconic individuals or events. And using their lives as a framework, I'm trying to show the context of the times. I'm not just trying to say what happened and how things happened, but why. Because history is never a coincidence. It's not luck. Everything's woven together. There's no history in a vacuum. When I wrote about Manson, I really wanted to write about the late 60s in America. The last gunfight, the shootout at the OK Corral, which wasn't a shootout really and didn't happen in the OK Corral. I wanted to write about the settling of the American frontier. In writing these books of mine, I always drive everywhere that the people I'm writing about went. I don't fly out places. I want to drive. I really want to see the land. So that meant I was driving a lot, and I was uh, enjoying a lot of amenities, and I found myself wondering about motels and gas stations. You know, where do all these things come from? And you start to look back at history, and then all of a sudden you see there's kind of a common thread. And some of these threads led back to men I'd heard of, certainly read some books about, Ford, Edison, John Burroughs, one of the famous naturalists in American history, Harvey Firestone, whom all of us of a certain age remember from the the Firestone tire jingle on TV. 
And it was just astonishing. There's nothing better than writing a book where you are surprised and thrilled as you go through the research and you begin to see how things link up together. My theory is that if I get excited, if I have fun researching and writing a book, maybe I can share that sense with the reader. I had no idea how America became a car culture. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to write that book, not about the cars themselves, the mechanics of them and so forth, but what there was that convinced America, we're going to change, we're going to do this now, and everybody is going to sort of jump in at once. And having written that, working on writing that book, then, of course, I found other things, surprising parallels to today politically, historically. So much is woven into their story. Yet it's a nice, fast read, which I liked. I'm looking at the book as you're talking about how much is packed into it. And I almost want to pick up my copy and shake it and say, wait a minute, all that all that can't possibly be in here, all these stories. But it really is. You touch on all of those things. Ford has a political career. That's all in there. And it's a full 10 years just of the road trips. So that's all tight writing, all weaved in there. And feels like a road trip. When you get home from a road trip, you start talking about all the things that happened and where you stayed and the things you saw. Of course, they have the benefit of reporters following them. And whenever they roll into town, somebody's going to do a story or 10 on them and try to get interviews and Never mind speaking to people like Jeff Bisbee, who just had them in their house and asking him, what did it feel like? And back then, a big thing to do was you'd say, I shook the hand that shook the hand of the famous person. So I'm sure that they were pumping the flesh there with <laughs> with <laughs> Jeff Bisbee to want to shake the hand that shook the hand of Edison and Ford. There was a lot of material, I imagine, for you to dig through. How did you go through that? I always like to get an idea of how an author goes about the research end of it. And here... These guys are just huge. There's so much copy, so much ink spilled and dedicated to them and their careers, not to mention the museums. They each have their own museum. <laughs> There's no fat in there. If we were talking about the suspension of a car, you'd feel like you were right on the road. There's no cushion, right? And that's not enjoyable, but reading the book is. How did you get that? There's a couple aspects to it. The first is going everywhere yourself. And if we start just with really the first trip in the book, which was a disastrous trip into the Everglades, it isn't enough just to say, well, okay, I'm going to drive in the vicinity. My photographer and I went to Fort Myers, Florida. That was where Ford, later Edison first, had winter estates. And through the local historical society, we found an old plat map from 1914 which showed where the first primitive roads had been cut into the Everglades. And we rented a car, four-wheel drive, and we found that little cut road they used that's mostly overgrown now, and we went in that way. Wow. And just like they did, we uh, sort of got stranded, and there were alligators and snakes, and it got a little unpleasant. But it helps you understand, and you can write and describe that and bring the reader right there. The second thing is, Lord, please, anybody who reads this book and enjoys it, go to the Ford Museum in Dearborn. Go to the Edison Historic Gardens in New Jersey. They will open up for you. Their archives, you can hold in your hand the notes these guys wrote back and forth to each other about the trips. It's real, actual history you can touch. 
And then finally, and this is something that gets overlooked a lot. Remember that I said the vagabonds didn't go to the big cities. They went out into the country, into the small communities, where it was just an amazing thing to see such famous people. And today, all through America, in every little small town, every isolated county, there exist little historical societies who have saved all the clippings, who have all the oral histories of what great-grandma thought when she saw the vagabonds pull into town. And they will share these things. These are views of real live history that aren't available anywhere else. And the small historical societies get overlooked or people make fun of them. In this book, they've been critical. Everything you're going to read in the book, in some sense or another, comes from a first-hand account. Whether it's something Edison wrote or Ford dictated, whether it's something a reporter asked and got an answer, whether it's a little film clip of Edison and Ford having a high-kicking contest or Burroughs and Ford trying to have a tree-chopping contest. This history is there for us if we just want to work a little and we want to find it. I love the companions, too, because they add some conflict and it reminds you that there are other people in the world, right? (laughs) I love that John Burroughs, which makes sense. He's a naturalist. We don't get a chance to see these people from history suddenly in a car bouncing around. We don't we don't think of them that way unless we read a book like The Vagabonds. He calls the Model T a demon on wheels, which is great. And speaking of wheels, he's sitting there right next to Firestone, who I imagine is telling him it's perfectly safe. This is going to be <laughs> this is going to be fine. Well, what are you making fun of the wheels for? Why don't you mention something else? But there are many of those things that are ribbing each other. Any of us can imagine going to the bar with our friends, going on a road trip with our friends, and having these same moments. So when you tell me that these are all first-person accounts, that makes total sense because that's just how it reads. It reads as if people are telling you what they saw and experienced when they were together. And the junior partners, so to speak, are writing just as much. They're leaving a record. They would have been guys who had a lot of star power at the time, but nobody's going to out-star power Ford and Edison. So I did want to remember them back there in the back seat, Firestone and Burroughs. What did they bring to these road trips? Why bring them along on the trips? Well, let's think about the Beatles, if they'd just been Lennon and McCartney. (laughs) Starr and Harrison didn't quite measure up, you know, to the A-list to them, yet they were very talented men in their own right. Ford and Edison did not have that many friends. Each of them thought, if someone's trying to be my friend, he wants something from me. That's why they were so close to each other, because both men already had achieved the apex of everything. Ford, in particular, admired John Burroughs. Burroughs was a naturalist. He wrote about traipsing around New York State. He wrote a lot about birds. Ford, obviously, was your type A personality. His hobby was work. But one thing he did love was bird watching. And he was so enamored of Burroughs and Burroughs writing that when Burroughs started to try to warn everybody away from cars, he offered to give Burroughs a Model T so he could see for himself how wonderful driving was. Well, Burroughs wasn't a very good driver. He drove that Model T straight through a barn 
and Ford had to send a bunch of mechanics out to, to help fix it. <laughs> but he could go on these trips. And now he'd complain all the time. John Burroughs was a world-class griper. Everything from the roads too bouncy to I'm not getting a hot dinner every day at noon. But he understood nature. And he could stop the car procession and he could go out and he could lecture about these birds, this, these, plant, these types of plant life. Ford is fascinated. Edison is taking notes because Edison is very interested in plants at this time. He's trying to come up with ways that the United States can develop its own sources of rubber. So you've got that knowledge. Plus, Burroughs has a certain entertainment quotient. He is a writer, and he complains loudly to Edison and about Edison that you made movies happen, and movies are going to be the ruin of mankind. Young people aren't going to want to read anymore. They're just going to go to movies where they don't have to think. You know, the ruination of America is coming, and you're part of it. And let's face it, we still hear things like that. If girls were alive today, he would find his Skype interview to be horrifying. <laughs> because we're not conversing. But he had this knowledge of nature that just made a difference and resonated with Ford and Edison. As far as Harvey Firestone, Firestone is in himself a great and prominent man. He has come up with some of the kinds of tires that are going to be more resilient on these terrible roads in America where most of the roads are called wish-to-God roads, <laughs> as in the drivers wish to God. They weren't driving over so many rocks and in so many ruts. <laughs> He's one of Ford's biggest suppliers. He's earned Ford's respect because he delivers a top-quality product for a reasonable price. I really admire Firestone in this story because he was entitled to his own ego. He didn't have to sort of be factotum. To Ford and Edison and take a lot of abuse, verbal abuse from Burroughs, but he sublimated his own desires because he felt these were men who were greater than he was, and it was an honor to assist them. And quite frankly, when they're out there, they're a great advertisement for Ford Model Ts, for Edison phonographs and light bulbs. And let's face it, those are Firestone tires on the cars. So it's good PR as well. You said that about wish to God roads, and I was looking at the tires here on the picture on the cover of the Vagabonds, and I was thinking that back in the days, my dad worked for Ford for a while, and they would call them Maypop tires. If your tires were <laughs> really, really bare or really cheap, they'd say, well, they may pop, so they'd call them Maypop tires, and that's what it made me think of there. You mentioned rubber. People probably don't think of where we get rubber from, but here we go. That's one of the things that they're trying to do is find a replacement for rubber. So there's so many things that are at play there. The tires, now it's the Michelin motto, so much is riding on your tires. But without the tires, the car is useless. So how amazing to get them all together and that Burroughs and Firestone are willing to literally at times take a back seat and just be happy to be together. You mentioned Burroughs griping and I chuckled to myself. I said, 
Well, every road trip needs that, right? Every, every road trip needs somebody to complain. Not so much fun when you're on the trip, but when you want to hear that story after, that adds so much to it because that's the person that in the old slapstick comedies of the early years of the movies that Edison helped bring us, that's the person that's always so funny to watch them be frustrated because they fall into a pond or they a bird <laughs> flies out or something, right, and gets them. Like Those guys are so interesting. It adds that to the whole story. Well, it's a very human story. I hope we get a sense of each individual. It, it was a conversion of, of people and time where things could happen, where great, great events were possible, great strides, great changes were made. And if we look at this history, history is really cyclical. The things that happened before seem to happen over and over again. During this period with the vagabonds, American culture is going to change forever. And on the coast, particularly the Northeast Coast and out in, on the West Coast, on the Pacific Coast, everyone's moving forward. There's embrace of change. There's talk about how we've got to move on. We've got to become better. Middle America is fearful. We're losing our way of life. They're trying to take our beliefs, and they're, they're making fun of them. And there was great antagonism in America, middle America versus the so-called elite coasts. And one of the reasons that Edison and Ford were celebrities above all else was that in the media, mainstream media, Ford was mocked a lot. He said a lot of things that set him up for ridicule, and by God, the media followed through and did it. And even Edison came in for his share of criticism. But in middle America, they're the people who put light in those farmhouses. They're the people who actually gave you a Model T so you could go see grandma and grandpa in the afternoons on Sundays where you hadn't been able to do that before. So they were beloved in a special way in the heartland of America, and they were critical to the cultural change going on in the coasts. If we look at America today, we've got the same sort of heartland versus the coast thing going on. Ford was considered a likely candidate for president because he promised he was going to go throw a wrench in it. We're not going to have any more of this layered, larded incompetence in Washington. You know, A businessman can go in and straighten everything out. Ford got a lot of his appeal in the Midwest by uh, making terrible anti-Semitic comments, appealing to certain prejudices in people who supported him politically. These things resonate in history. They happen. We think they're isolated, and then they happen again. So if you read The Vagabonds, you'd probably say, wait a minute, a lot of these things are still going on today. And it's true. You're enjoying my ride with Jeff Gwynn about his latest book, the Vagabonds, the story of Henry Ford and Thomas Edison's 10-year road trip. You can find more about our guest at his Simon & Schuster author page or toss him a like at facebook.com slash Author. Thomas Cobb, author of Crazy Heart and Darkness, the Color of Snow, writes of your book, quote, Meticulously researched and gracefully written, The Vagabond shows us the architects of the 20th century in a new and fascinating light. 
and he calls it a great read, which I have to definitely agree with. I really enjoyed it. In fact, it was months before recording this that I read it, so I, I just couldn't wait. And you can see I'm still passionate about the story. You can hear it in my voice, I hope. <laughs> but behind every great man, as they say, are great women. So this is the case here. I want to remember the ladies. I want to welcome them into the car with us because I imagine that when the wives hear that their husbands are going to go on these trips. They're going to drive through the Everglades. I'll just speak for myself and my wife. She always says her idea of roughing it is the Holiday Inn. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not getting her out there into the Everglades where there's no roads to drive through that. The mosquitoes, just forget it. She's not getting in that car with me as much as she loves me. So that adds yet another layer to this. It's almost as if this is a novel. Of course, it's not. It's all nonfiction. You have some things in there from Mina Edison's journal. It's yet another resource. So give us a word for the ladies, as Abigail Adams might have said. Don't forget the ladies, right? She told her husband, John, when he was drafting the laws of the nation. So what were they doing? How did they deal with this trip their husbands went on? And were they game for the trip? In the beginning, the wives, Mina Edison and, and Clara Ford, saw the trips as something that might be a lovely adventure. And the first one in 1914, the menfolk thought to begin with that they were just going to go into the Everglades. Mina Edison thought otherwise. She was much younger than her husband, Thomas. She was his second wife. The first one died tragically. But Mina refused to be called housewife. She said she was a home executive that everything women did was just as important as what men did. And by golly, if they were going into the Everglades with Mr. Burroughs, the ladies had the right to learn all about nature from him just as much as men folk. And she and Clara Ford were coming. Clara Ford was, eh, I don't think so. She was petrified of snakes. Oh, boy. Mina promised it's going to be fun. It wasn't. They got caught in a terrible rainstorm. They got stranded in the Everglade. There were plenty of snakes and, and some alligators to boot. And at the end of that particular trip, it looked like that was the end of the ladies going. And for several years, it was just the men. 1921, though, the guests on a trip in Maryland were going to be President Harding and the First Lady. Well, by golly, <laughs> Mrs. Edison and Mrs. Ford were going to hobnob with Mrs. Harding. They decided they would come along on that trip. And for the first time, the vagabonds had to have sheets besides blankets because Mrs. Ford said the president and first lady needed nice bedclothes. Unfortunately, Mrs. Harding became indisposed and never showed up. But once Mina Edison had her teeth in the trips again. The ladies were going to go from then on in. They became a big part of it. In two particular ways, it's fun reading their letters and their diaries. Mina Edison couldn't stand Henry Ford. She thought he dragged her poor husband around in lots of unnecessary ways. And Mina looked for ways to plague Ford. A favorite was that every year Ford would want to give the Edisons a couple new cars, one for Thomas Edison and one for Mrs. Edison. Well, Mrs. Edison would complain that her car rattled and poor Ford, who wanted to please her, would send his engineers and his mechanics to New Jersey. They couldn't fix the car. She'd complain. She'd complain. He'd say, I'll get you any car you want. She'd say, no, I want this one. Fix it. 
knowing a car would always rattle. There was another year when she drove him crazy because she wanted a blue car and he sent her one. And then she kept his paint people busy for months trying to find the exact shade of blue that she knew she wanted, but couldn't quite describe. She liked making Ford uncomfortable. Clara Ford, on the other hand, lived to try to support her husband. The only time she didn't was when he decided he would run for president of the United States, and she fiercely opposed that. It was the only time she ever told him no, that she wouldn't go along with something. If it hadn't been for her, I think Henry Ford would have run for president openly, and I think eventually he would have been elected. And we have no idea what kind of chaos might have ensued because Ford had no idea how to govern beyond the fact he was going to be president and he was going to tear the whole thing apart. The ladies were good friends, Mina and Clara, and Mina wrote to her son that the only reason Henry Ford wasn't going to run for president because Mrs. Ford wouldn't let him. And then Mina added, she understands his shortcomings better than he does. So the ladies are critical. Sometimes they add a sort of comedic flair when they're getting drenched in the Everglades. But sometimes they're right there in the middle of things, and they too are changing American history. The Great War hits America during the period of the Vagabonds, and Ford tries his best to oppose it. He's really flat out against it. He's really loud about his opposition, tells anyone who will listen. He corners people in the military and starts telling them how this is ridiculous. It's just the bankers, the rich people trying to make money off the war. We, we shouldn't be in it at all. Leave Germany alone. Let's stay out of it. How did those real-life events and unpopular opinions, such as launching a peace ship to fight involvement, all of Ford's efforts, this is in the run-up to the war, he's not opposing the war when we're actually fighting it, far from it, but how does that test the vagabond's friendship? Because I could see that really splitting people apart if they didn't have that fundamental bond. It could have split Ford and Edison apart. Uh, Edison was a believer before the U.S. entry into the war for preparedness. Let's get the army ready. Let's be ready if we have to get into this to be able to go in and win. Ford was absolutely anti-war. And even though they were such close friends, occasionally that they sniped at each other through the press, they never, ever would disagree in person. If one had an opinion he wanted to pass to the other on a personal matter, They would have their secretaries pass messages. That saved them both the potential embarrassment of disagreeing so strongly one-on-one that they couldn't be friends anymore, that the French would be weakened. Edison thought the peace ship was a terrible idea. When Ford asked him to go, the idea being that some of the best minds in America would get aboard a ship and they would travel to Europe and through a series of lectures and discussions would convince the warring European powers to set aside their weapons. Edison knew that was never going to work. He had to tell Ford, no, he would not go. Later, when Ford got involved in a war with the mainstream media and ended up suing the Chicago Tribune for a million dollars for labeling him an anarchist, Edison had his secretary write to Ford's secretary, saying Mr. Edison hopes 
with the war over, Mr. Ford will simply forget this thing. But he'd never say it directly. They loved each other so much, and love is, is a good word for it. I mean, they, they felt this attachment to each other that they literally couldn't for anyone else because their lives were so different from anyone else's. They would support each other in time of personal trouble. When Edison's factories in New Jersey burned down, Ford showed up and just said, you'll need some money. Let me know if you need more and handed him a check for $750,000, which in 1914 was even more than it is today. The war could have split them up. The fact that it did not tells how much regard they had to each other. If you're really friends with someone, you have to allow them to have their own beliefs, even if they differ from yours. And, and they did that. Age starts catching up with Thomas Edison, and the government welcomes his help in the Great War, his ideas for defense, but they really just shelve them. They don't put anything into practice, which seems like a real waste of mental resources. I would love to have him working on some of these things. Imagine how he could have advanced the way that we were fighting that war. Meanwhile, Ford is younger, so he's a whirlwind of activity. He loses a U.S. Senate race by a very narrow margin and avoids that shoo-in presidency that his wife was hoping that he would avoid. That Chicago Tribune libel trial, though, it lays bare in the book his habit of shooting from the lip, and in this case, about the Jewish people. That anti-Semitism blots his legacy. In fact, forget all of these large things that he did, all these important things, as many people do, the only thing that they'll boil it down to is they know that he was anti-Semitic, that he expressed these views. Of course, he expressed all of his views on whatever it was very loudly and very strongly. He wasn't a guy who was shuffling one foot and saying, well, gee, I don't know about the war or whatever it was. He seems to have stated everything like a punch in the face very forcefully. How did you approach writing about a man who you're going to have to quote these things. You're going to have to say that he had these anti-Semitic views. You're, you're going to have to shake your head at him and you're going to have to sometimes just get mad at him and say, hey, if I'm writing a book about you, darn it, you, you should be a better guy. You should be better than this. At least that's how I feel about it because I want to look up to Henry Ford. And yet he does have this blot on his legacy. So how do you approach that as an author? Because I'm just the reader. I, I just read what's there. I can deal with it my own way. But you have to present it in a way that you feel is fair. So how did you go about that so that readers don't recoil from Henry Ford? Well, I think modern readers will recoil from this aspect of Henry Ford. You know, there's very few shining, perfect individuals. And as I researched this book, certainly I had to deal with Ford's anti-Semitism. It's also true that Thomas Edison had no respect for Jews, and he also uh, was uh, a racist in, in many ways. We must, as we write about history, not forgive terrible attitudes and beliefs, but we do have to weigh them in the context of their time. In 19-teens America, it was very much a society dominated by white male Protestants. You can make the argument America still is. It's a time when even Catholics are considered kind of exotic and a little suspicious in lots of areas in the country. Ford was an unabashed anti-Semite. He was. 
And in this, he had a lot in common with a lot of other Americans, particularly ones who grew up at that time in middle America. The fact he expressed them so crudely and for so long is wrong. It's disgusting. We can't judge him only on that. Learning about these things that he believed that he said, I don't know that I ever would have wanted to consider him a friend. That doesn't take away from the fact in so many other ways he made great positive contributions to America. We don't forgive the bad things, but we also can't forget the good ones. All I can do as a writer is tell things as objectively and honestly as I can. Readers will make their own decisions. It's not my job to decide for them how they feel about someone. What I can do is I can work my tail off to give them the facts so they can make their own judgments. I probably would have felt the same way about Florence Harding, the Duchess, if she had come. You talk about hobnobbing with her, and I thought to myself, I, I can't imagine that first lady. I mean, they called her the Duchess. That gives you an idea. Her husband called her the Duchess, President Harding. So she would never have been somebody who you'd want there, and she's not a particularly wonderful person. I don't think you'd ever consider her a friend. It, it's hard. And, you know, to a certain extent, the things he said then still hurt him today. There are going to be people who are going to hear that and immediately dismiss him as a mindless bigot. And in some sense, they're right. Ford could not understand because he felt he was being sincere. He was sharing information with people. Why anyone, including Jews, should be offended. Uh, he actually counted a few Jews as friends, um, one, a rabbi in Detroit he admired so much, he would give the rabbi a new Model T every year. When Ford in the Dearborn Independent, the newspaper he bought to espouse his anti-Semitic views, 91 straight weeks they would have an anti-Semitic story trying to reveal how the Jews were doing this as a plot or that. The rabbi returned the car and Ford couldn't understand it. He called him up and said, has something come between us? That means that as badly as this reflects on Ford, he literally had no idea just how offensive he was being. He thought he was being helpful. So I don't know whether that makes him any less a bigot or a racist, but that was his attitude towards things. He was just laying out the facts. Of course, they really weren't the facts, but that doesn't stop a lot of prominent people from trying to offer their opinions on things. We have time for one final question, and in a way, the Vagabond's mission to popularize auto camping, as you called it, or as they called it, worked so well that it ended the trips. There became almost no point to them anymore. There, there was no more of that ink to be written about what they did. You drove the routes that the foursome traveled as much as you could. If people are listening to our conversation now, if they're going to pick up the Vagabonds, maybe on their way flying somewhere, read it on the plane, and then when they get in that rental car on their way to drive to Grandma's house or wherever they're going, what is it that they owe? What debt to this decade of jaunts by Ford, Edison, Firestone, and Burroughs? What we owe in modern America to the Vagabonds is the fact 
that we feel we have the freedom to get in our cars and go wherever we want to go. That freedom was not felt more than a couple generations ago. Because of Ford and Edison, that gift, the gift of freedom, the gift of movement, as we wished, became part of our heritage. And that will never change. Well, Jeff Gwynn, author of The Vagabonds, thank you so much for welcoming us into your Model T for this one-of-a-kind roll through the earliest days of motor hotels, rest stops, parkways, and, of course, with all respect to Mr. Firestone, flat tires. Certainly (laughs) going to get some of those on a long road trip. I wish you the best of luck with the book. I hope readers will pick it up to appreciate the ride in a whole new way the next time they get their motor running and head out on the highway, because this book really will change the way you look at everything along that route. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation. Well, thank you. I really did enjoy the book. I I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that means a lot to me. I I sure hope your audience enjoys hearing about it. And thank you again. This is an opportunity. I realize that. Again, the book is The Vagabonds, the story of Henry Ford and Thomas Edison's 10-year road trip. You can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. By buying the book through historyauthor.com, you help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. It's the next best thing to chipping in for gas money. Thanks to Jeff Gwynn for joining us and for putting us in the rumble seat with two 20th century giants. Find more about our guest at his Simon & Schuster author page or toss him a like at facebook.com slash Author. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, Instagram at The History Author Show, or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this Road Warrior installment of The History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. Or enjoy one of the written Q&As we post at HistoryAuthor.com from time to time. And if you're an iTunes subscriber who liked what you heard today, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. The boys won the war and came home from the fight. The last night on Broadway was almost night. But ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to be. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.